Welcome to Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022, a series by the Planetary Podcast, part of the Civil Society Celebration and Declaration for Stockholm Plus 50, a half century later after the historic 1972 UN Conference on the Human Environment. In Common Home Conversations, you will hear high-level political and public figures, academics, and influential activists discuss what should be the content of the high-level declaration foreseen for 2022. Our planet faces a myriad of catastrophic environmental challenges, from climate change to widespread biodiversity loss to desertification. The science is clear. The state of our global environment is deteriorating at an unprecedented rate, highlighting the need for fundamental transformative changes across our legal, economic, social, political, and technological spheres. Thus, there is an urgent need to reach a common ground within civil society and around it build a civil society declaration with the potential to be the needed starting point for a paradigm shift towards a safe and sustainable future for our global community. Common Home Conversations is the place to discuss the challenges posed by climate change, as well as possible solutions to help create a stabilized Earth and ensure that the Civil Society 2022 Declaration can be a true game-changer. Now, here is your host, founder, and CEO of the Planetary Press, Kimberly White. Hello and welcome to Common Home Conversations. Today we're joined by Leda Renout, environmental justice expert and an associate at the Stakeholder Forum for a Sustainable Future. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, Leda, can you tell us more about the Stakeholder Forum for a Sustainable Future and what it aims to accomplish? Sure. Uh, Stakeholder Forum is a non-for-profit international organization that aims to enhance an open and transparent decision-making at all levels. And for that, we support a civil society organization in giving their inputs in several decision-making processes on governmental and also on UN level. So we are in kind of the bridge between the official processes and civil society groups. And Stakeholder Forum, we are a group of experts and advisors that all work together in a team and have several projects as well. Thank you. Now, can you share a little bit more about your work facilitating the civil society meetings to coordinate their input to push for a global framework for environmental governance and law at the UN? Yes, I have decades of working with civil society organizations to guide them and facilitate them in giving input in UN processes. And when the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly 72277 was adopted, member states started to negotiate a global pact for the environment. That meant that there were several working groups organized and member states and the UN are always happy that civil society organizations are giving their input. Also because NGOs often have very bright ideas, new ideas to help this process. It was clear that member states were not, let's say, ready yet for having a global pact for the environment. So after many meetings, they kind of agreed on the fact that, yes, they will continue the process, but they first will start with a high-level political declaration done in 2022. So that meant another process, this time guided by UNEP and not the General Assembly. And again, we were invited to civil society organizations to give our inputs in the whole ID on the declaration. As civil society, there are many, many groups engaged in this process. So my task is to facilitate the process and to have a coordinated input for the member states so that they know more or less what we want as NGOs. 
So the next milestone for us is to have a summit in October where civil society organizations come together and again discuss what kind of issues should be in that declaration. It's a political declaration, so that means for us, and now I'm also speaking a little bit on my own behalf, I think if you have a political declaration, I think it has to include a commitment from the member states to continue this process, because it is very clear that a lot of things are already happening related to environmental governance, related to environmental law, but it's still a little bit not coordinated, not from UNEP's side, not from the member states' side. So there is still a lot of work. So I'm a little bit afraid that we are not ready yet for having everything in a consensus for 2022. So that's why we are asking that 2022 will be the kickoff for member states and UNEP to start a longer process to really negotiate a whole package for having a global framework on environmental governance and law. So that's what we are now aiming for. Now, you mentioned that the member states were initially hesitant when this was first introduced. Why do you think that is? When people hear the word pact, they're kind of, well, we don't want it. We also have still a lot of countries that are absolutely not in favor of any legally binding or even not legally binding international agreements. We have seen the whole problems with the Paris Agreement. I mean, it's still for a lot of countries a kind of no-go. So that's why it was difficult to have the countries on the same page. How can civil society influence member states to take concrete action on environmental issues such as climate change, biodiversity loss, or environmental degradation? I think there are, of course, a lot of things that civil society can do, but I will limit myself to this one on campaigning for a global framework for global governance and law. Because I think that is, for me at least, I think it's key for doing all the other things. We need, as I said, a level playing field. We cannot afford anymore that private sector, multinationals or governments going to the lowest points where there is no environmental regulation or law or governance and where they can damage the environment where they want. So I think we need something which is global, that guides not only us as governments or citizens, but also the private sector on what are the rules, etc. There is already a lot of regulation on labor conditions. There is a lot on health, etc. There is a lot on environmental governance and law as well, but it's not coordinated and it's not enforced. There are no compliance mechanisms to see if a country is indeed respecting the environmental laws that are existing. So I think that is something that UNEP, which is the environmental program of the United Nations, that is now also upgraded to UNEA, the United Nations Environmental Assembly. So that means that all member states are part of this process. I think they should take a lead there. They really have to show that this is the only body within the United Nations that has the mandate to really take leadership in implementing environmental governance and law. Member states have their role, of course, as well. As we are talking about the environment, the commons, so something that is not a private property of no one, so it's a collective property of everybody. There is not someone that can say, well, this is mine. So I think for that, we need also a global framework for managing, maintaining and protecting all those commons, which is air and soil and water and the oceans, etc., etc. So I think there is no escape (laughs) there. 
it has to be on the global level, that it has to be organized. And of course, the implementation is also on the national levels because we still have national law on environmental issues. Now, I think when we talk about global environmental governance with civil society, there are often a lot of questions on what that means and what could be the potential benefits of such a governance system. Could you elaborate on this? I think global governance and the rule of law is something that a lot of civil societies are not so interested in because they work more on topics. They work on air pollution, plastic pollution, climate change, etc., etc. But I think it's also important to have a kind of global framework that is giving us the rules of the game, the rules of the game for all the kind of things that we are doing in our economy, let's say. Uh, the market, it's clear, is not going to think about that because the market is really more about exchanging services and goods, and it's not regulating their own. I mean, that's not what they do. I mean, some economists do believe that, but of course, we see in the reality that it's not. So we need regulation of the market. We need not only in governance, but also in law. It is still a kind of free good for many, many companies to use the air, to use water, to use soil, to damage it. And some countries, they are looking at it, but in many countries, it's a kind of, okay, that's bad luck because it is very important that that company is there because it delivers jobs and economic growth, etc., etc. So I think until now, the environment or the commons are seen as a kind of something that is free, available for everybody. While, of course, it is not, because if you are going beyond our planetary boundaries, that means that we have a lot of negative effects, not only for future generations, but also within our own uh, what you also see is that a lot of negative impacts from our way of living, especially in the global north, is also in the global south. So that means that we are not really having a fair way of organizing our economy, our markets. And for that, of course, we need regulation. And as most of the things are already transboundary, we need an international regulation, which is, as we see it, as the global framework for environmental governance and law. Climate change and widespread biodiversity loss are symptoms of a more significant underlying problem, our current development model. In developed countries, the way we live, the way we consume, the way we import and produce create negative externalities somewhere else, such as overexploitation of resources, land degradation, poverty, etc. However, because this happens somewhere else, we have this out-of-sight, out-of-mind mindset. How can we move beyond this mindset and become more conscious of our impacts beyond our borders? It is indeed about a mindset. I think it is important that we getting aware of the way we are consuming and producing. I would not blame consumers for everything. I think it's getting more and more difficult for them to know where the products are coming from, what is the whole product change, because it's getting quite complicated. I don't think that you need some kind of university degree to go to the supermarket and see where the things are coming from, where they are made of, etc. So I'm in very in favor of focusing on the production side. We have to phase out all unsustainable products and that you can do with regulation. So that's what we call choice editing. So that means that all the products that are damaging the environment, first of all, they become much more expensive because one of the regulations or one of the things that I think we are aiming for is having internationalization of the external costs in the price. Though that's a difficult way of saying that we want the producers to compensate or at least to restore their environmental damage. That means that is costing something and that should be also part of the price. So that means that unsustainable products are more expensive than 
sustainable products, which is now the other way around. So I think that is something that could be done. You can also think of having a ban on some products. In Europe, we have product norms, and most of those product norms are related to personal health impacts. Let's say asbest is forbidden because it causes cancer in persons. I think we can make this broader so that product norms are also done for a more public health. If a product is really causing too much climate change, for instance, then you can say, okay, let's ban this product. It's not coming into the market. I think it's also about um, capping norms. The IPCC, the uh, International Panel for Climate Change, they made targets per country, per region, per sector on CO2 emissions. You can have a similar exercise on resource use. I'm inviting already for years the International Resource Panel to come up with calculations on targets per country, per sector, on how much natural resources they could use for several production. And you just can't go over it. So that means that companies, the bigger multinationals, they are just forced to use less resources. I think in general, we need indeed policies to maintain our economy within the planetary boundaries. So I think that is something that is key. I agree with you on the level of consumer awareness. It's hard to know where a lot of these products come from and how they were produced. I mean, a lot of people don't know that international trade, for example, has been linked to 30% of global species threats, and a lot of that can be attributed to the consumers in wealthy nations. Because as demand increases for commodities produced in developing countries, their biodiversity footprint increases. Unsurprisingly, a lot of these related biodiversity threats are highest among the G20 countries due to their consumption of products such as tea, coffee, or sugar. For developed countries, approximately 44% of their biodiversity footprint can be linked to things produced outside of their own national boundaries. It's just one of those things where you don't really recognize it because it isn't something you're seeing. It happens elsewhere. It's that out-of-sight, out-of-mind mindset like I mentioned a few minutes ago. That is indeed uh, very important to have that in mind. And I think that's why it is so clear that the international market is not regulating herself or himself. But I think for that reason, of course, we need that international regulation and governance. And I think what is also very important with that global governance framework is that you also push for countries to have ministries for environments. Uh, you see more and more uh, countries abolishing the Minister of Environment, which I think is really, really bad. Also, I mean, in European countries, they try to mainstream it in other ministries, a Ministry of Infrastructure, Ministries of Spatial Planning, etc., or limited to only energy and climate, but not having an overall minister of environment. There are still, of course, but it's getting less, which I think is a bad sign. Having such a huge international and environmental challenges, I don't think that we can afford to abolish ministers of environment. So if you have, let's say, your environmental protection institutionalized in your country, in your whole governance structure, then I think you have a better guarantee that it is taken care of. Absolutely. In the United States, we have the EPA. And unfortunately, as elected officials come and go throughout the years, there is a chance for the next government to roll back environmental protections, which is frustrating. So there really has to be a system of accountancy for protecting the environment that is capable of withstanding shifts in political narrative or interest. And you know, as the world begins to recover from the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, many governments are focused on returning to business as usual and not realizing the potential of nature-based solutions to boost their economies. 
The World Bank recently released its report on economics and nature, which found that humanity and nature are interlinked. Humanity is completely dependent on nature for our survival, well-being, and economic prosperity. And if we continue to push our ecosystems, they're going to reach a tipping point which could either cause them to shift to a new state or collapse completely. This collapse could result in a severe economic decline, causing an annual loss of nearly $3 trillion in the global GDP by 2030. Absolutely. The costs of non-action are also quite, quite high. And as you say, I mean, we're all dependent on nature and the environment. So often protecting the environment was seen as a kind of luxury thing to do. When you have everything, then you can try to protect the environment. But it's, of course, the other way around. We are totally dependent on our uh, ecosystems and our environment. So if we start to uh, destroy that, that means that we cannot have an, uh, an economy. I think even after many, many years, the trade unions uh, saw that there are no jobs on a dead planet. So I think they also made that mindset shift that protecting the nature and environment is as much as important than protecting jobs. Absolutely. Now, in 2019, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, Philip Alston, said that despite contributing just a fraction of global emissions, developing countries will bear the brunt of climate change and the world is at risk of a climate apartheid scenario. As we have seen in recent years, there is a growing call for climate justice around the world. In your opinion, how can the 2022 declaration contribute to the fight for climate justice? Well, firstly, I would like to talk about environmental justice and not only climate. Um, most of my life I worked on natural resources, uh, not that much on climate change. So I think, yes, it would help environmental justice because now we see that more environmental damage than, let's say, necessary is done in the global south. And mining is often in South America because, of course, they have more resources, but also because it's easier for a mining company to do business there because the environmental regulation and the social regulation is not that hard. I think if we have a level playing field for all the things that we are doing, be it related to chemicals, related to mining, related to uh, CO2 emissions, etc., etc., uh, if that's all the same for all the countries, I think that we will already have more environmental justice because the laws are the same. And then also companies will use uh, better technology that they have in the global south of something that we don't see. Uh, if you compare mining sites in Europe with a mining site uh, somewhere in Congo, there is a huge difference because the company is just not uh, using the best technology or the cleanest technology to take out the resources that they need for, uh, let's say, the batteries for the electric cars, etc. So I think uh, having the things on paper is not enough. That's why I think that having a declaration is absolutely not enough because that's just a piece of paper uh, and good intention that member states say, okay, this is what we want. So that's why I'm absolutely key in that in that declaration is already a political commitment of the member states to start a process for another three, four years where we can negotiate that global framework for environmental governance and law. As I said, I mean, the time was not ripe, not yet for a lot of member states to really have a global pact. I think we are still not there to have a global framework, but for that, I think we need another three, four years to negotiate on that. We did more or less the same with the SDGs in Rio Plus 20. That was in 2012. Member states committed themselves to start a process to develop and establish the 2030 Agenda. Three years later, so that was in 2015, we had the 2030 Agenda with the 17 uh, SDGs. It has principles, it has goals, targets, indicators, etc. 
That's something that we have now also in mind, but then specifically on environmental governance and law. And that is, of course, related to the SDGs, but it's standalone framework because environmental governance and law needs standalone institutionalization within the government. So if we have three years time for establishing and negotiating together with member states and civil society to establish a global framework, then that would have also just like the SDGs, principles, goals, targets, means of implementations, how to do the technology or the knowledge transfer, capacity building, having a better overview on where the funding can come from, indicators, and also the monitoring of the whole progress and not too voluntary, so that we can have a monitoring system as well per country to see how far they are in the implementation and in the enforcement of um, the uh, law and governance. There's already a lot of international environmental law. We have the MEAs, the Multilateral Environmental Agreements, but what is often lacking is the implementation and the enforcement, the compliance. Uh, so that is something that needs more focus, of course, and that is what we are aiming with the declaration. And once that everything is in place, I think it will be also a step forward in achieving more environmental justice. Thank you, Leda. Before we go, could you share what you think should be included in the Civil Society Draft Declaration, which will be discussed at the Stockholm 49 Summit, for it to be a true game changer? I think what should be included is the political commitment of all member states and UNEP to start a process in the coming time, three, four years, to establish a global framework for environmental governance and law, which includes principles, goals, targets, means of implementation, indicators, and a strong monitoring scheme for progress made in the countries. When we have that, I think we achieved a first step in a better world because then we have a better level playing field for governments and companies to maintain, protect and manage our commons and our environmental system in this planet. All right, and there you have it. To better address the climate crisis, we need a level playing field. We cannot afford any more business as usual from the private sector or governments damaging the environment whenever and wherever they want. The costs of inaction are too high, and our commons have been seen as something free and available for everybody. But they're not. If we exceed our planetary boundaries, there are negative effects for future generations as well as our own. We need something global that guides us, a global framework for environmental governance and law to maintain, protect, and manage our commons and our environment on this planet. That is all for today, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Common Home Conversations Pathway to 2022. Please subscribe, share, and be sure to tune in on August 25th to continue the conversation with our special guest, Helena Lindemark, founder of the 2022 Initiative Foundation. And visit us at www.theplanetarypress.com for more episodes and the latest news in sustainability, climate change, and the environment.